what works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works. What works for you. This is What Works. A few years ago, I sat with a group of entrepreneurs in the living room of a cute little condo in Whitefish, Montana, to facilitate conversations about obstacles and opportunities. It was a group of super successful folks, some on their way to a million dollars or more in annual revenue, others embarking on big change, and still others who were undertaking radical new projects. This is not the kind of group of people who dole out derivative advice or positive thinking. They're each thoughtful, creative, and a bit subversive in their own way. Over our time together, each business owner took turns sharing a particular challenge or idea with the group and allowed others to ask questions, share experiences, or offer ideas. Towards the end of the retreat, we had only a couple of people left who hadn't spoken, and I wasn't worried about it because these are the kind of folks who really value being immersed in others' challenges. But finally, one of those remaining business owners spoke up. And she said, the question I've been trying to answer for myself is, what does growth without striving look like? It, it hadn't been like fully formed. And then when it comes out of your mouth, you're like, oh, awesome. Thank you. That was really helpful. That's Rita Berry, the founder of Rita Berry & Co., a social advertising agency for female-led businesses. She explained that in the last couple of years, she'd grown her business well beyond any material needs or even most desires her family had. Her business didn't need to grow, but she liked growth. She was interested in learning and developing new skills, new perspectives on life and business, but she didn't want to strive. I think I, I was just born into being a type of person that lends themselves to wanting to achieve. Success was like, it's kind of like a mirage, I guess, right? Where you're like, you see it in the distance, you move toward it, you do everything you think you're supposed to do, and you get there and then it just disappears and moves further away. Mm -hmm. And so you're just in this constant state of just chasing this thing. And, and it was like, do I even want this thing? I love learning and growing and evolving as a human and all of these pieces. So how do you do that without being in this hamster wheel of chasing this imaginary thing, right? Like that was the stress, the friction in me at that point. And what I have come to now is very much that you can do both. What does growth without striving look like? And why are we so compelled to strive, succeed, and achieve? These are questions that have been foundational to my own work over the last few years, and in no small part, thanks to Rita. I've done the research, I've had the conversations, I have a working theory. But to kick off this year, I wanted to go back to the source and get the full story from Rita and learn how her thinking and action has evolved since she first articulated that question. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores navigating the 21st century economy with your humanity intact. As I mentioned, I've talked to a lot of people about this drive to succeed. And for many of us, it's rooted, unsurprisingly, in childhood experiences and what we were told was necessary for us to make it in this world. 
Rita and I have very similar experiences of school and even share the experience of knowing that to get to college and ensure a future for ourselves, we needed to excel because there wasn't going to be money to pay for college outright. We also share a similar mindset about what's actually possible to achieve in school. I always felt like if the teachers and the books and everything that had been brought to me in the course of of whatever course or class it was, if I had 100% of the information presented to me, there was no reason I couldn't get 100% on the test, the assignment. Like logically, that just made sense to me. And, And I never questioned it, right? That was just, I just assumed. And I went for that. Like I got a hundred percent on report cards, meaning exams, every test, every assignment, perfection, right? And then of course the whole world is telling you this is remarkable. Remarkable. That's the kind of external validation someone like Rita or I can live on for months. I, as all Enneagram 3s know, we get a lot of external validation from all of those activities because that's how our nice capitalist society measures achievement, success, and worthiness. The problem, though, is that external validation is never enough. Measuring ourselves by the expectations of the neoliberal meritocracy we're taught to believe we exist in can't actually create the self-worth, sense of identity, or comfort we hope it will. It also can't fend off the fear of imminent failure or substitute for stability in an economy defined by precarity. But man, we sure try. And that's what I call the validation spiral. Essentially, the spiral begins with a particular commitment or responsibility. It feels good to take it on, make it your project. And others validate you for saying yes or leveling up, and that feels even better. But that feeling doesn't last long. So when another commitment or responsibility comes up, you take that one on too, so you can reclaim that validation. You get where I'm going with this, right? That same process happens over and over again until we're hopelessly overcommitted and our resources are stretched thin or completely depleted. And at that point, you're actually undercommitted to all the things you said yes to for validation. You end up feeling like a failure. You either half-ass your way to the finish line, burn out and miserable, or you break down and quit everything. I know, that is an extreme example of the consequences of the validation spiral. But I'm going to bet that you can remember a time when they felt like your only options. It's just incredibly stressful. Like just that whole, it never occurred to me that there was an option that wasn't that. But to me, that was that was striving. That's yeah. just how I lived and how I felt all the time. If I don't achieve, then like I would catastrophize it. Like that, it was more where, you know, some people can be like, I'm working on a goal and then if I don't get it, it's fine. I'm like, well, no, but then I'm gonna be a failure. The validation spiral isn't a mindset issue or something that lives in your head. It can have real physical consequences and be devastating to your mental health. Like I lost my hair, like good chunks of it, like real actual physical stress symptoms. I didn't go to do things. Like if it was a choice between getting a 90% and then going out and having fun with my friends or getting 100% and staying home, then I would choose the latter, right? Because that was more important because that mattered for my future success as a human being. Like there was just so much weight put on it. It's pushing with just complete disregard for my own well-being and like all of that kind of stuff. 
Why do we strive in such self-destructive ways? Or if we don't, why do we feel like we should be? I have a few answers to this question, but the one that rings most true to Rita's story and mine for that matter is the enormous cultural shift that our society has gone through since the late 70s and early 80s. In the last 40 years, our society has been restructured around the free market as the ultimate test of value and proof of worthiness. And now everything can be turned into a commodity, including ourselves. That self-destructive striving, it's the natural result for many of us of the system, the neoliberal meritocratic system. In his book, What About Me?, Paul Verheg writes that, quote, human dimensions have all been made grist to a single mill, the neoliberal market economy. This has also resolved the conundrum of what constitutes the ideal individual. The answer is the most productive man or woman, end quote. This hang-up on worthiness and value isn't some odd personal idiosyncrasy. It's the prevailing economic, social, and political narrative of life in the Western world, and increasingly, globally. Now, once Rita made it through school with the laminated straight-A report cards to prove it, she expected to go on to the kind of career that traditionally marks someone's status as successful. Her family expected her to be a doctor or an engineer, and she was on that path to pre-med until she had a startling realization. I was going to be the doctor and like those, Mm -hmm. like the aptitude tests, surgeon, doctor, um, military surgeon, like literally everything was what was coming back in aptitude. I was in um, honors microbiology in university. Everything was geared toward just success of some sort of logical, um, you know, like that kind of profession, right? Like the Mm -hmm. doctors, the engineers, all that kind of stuff. And that's what I was good at. Math science stuff was really easy for me. And, you know, relatively speaking with the context we just discussed. But when I decided that it just like, there was something so hollow about it. Like I didn't, I realized I couldn't cut into people that like made me sick. For a summer job that in between years of university, I was working in different group homes and like doing more of those social services type activities. And I realized that like, I kind of loved it, right? Like I was good at taking care of people. I, I loved the like helping others. Something about that was really important to me. I loved getting to know people and just the relation that you'd have with staff teams and different things like that. Rita began what she still describes as a dream job in social work. That one was like a huge disappointment to a lot of people around me, which was really quite interesting. And so that that was like my first picking the fork in the road between this is not maybe the the most traditional path and not the one that's the most outwardly rewarded or financially compensated. Um, but it was definitely what felt right for me at the time. Rita loved her career and even met her husband, another social worker in that line of work. But her husband had a different dream. He wanted to become a police officer. And not just any kind of officer, but a federal officer in Canada. He got the nod, did his training, and then they had to move. We packed up, and this was kind of a known thing that you don't usually go back to your home province. So we moved halfway across the country, and we had a two-year-old. So when we moved halfway across the country with a two-year-old, and we were in a very small town, there was nowhere to put her for daycare. My business got started because I was bored out of my mind um, because 
even though I am like very achievement driven, I'm also like just I love to learn and be busy and feel like I'm challenging myself. And all of those things were were really missing in stay at home mumming for me. I did not find like fountains of fulfillment in doing that. I first met Rita in those early years of her business, and she's always impressed me with her willingness to establish and stick to a container for her business based on the time she wants to spend with her family. And that's hard, right? It's more common to say you have boundaries on your schedule, and then thanks to that validation spiral, fit all the work into the nooks and crannies of your day. Speaking from personal experience here. So I took this opportunity to ask Rita how she avoids that. I'm really good at like making lists and prioritizing most important activities. So I think that's something that mm. maybe the the list checker in me has always been fairly good at. Uh, that if I knew that there was a particular goal that we were trying to hit or when it was just me for a long time that I was trying to hit, you know, like what were the key activities? If I could only do one thing today, what would be the thing? Either you're figuring it out or you're not doing growth, right? Like you're just not, there's no way um, without making yourself crazy and working into all of your margin in your day. And that's, you know, it does happen from time to time. I'm not a magical unicorn, but it's definitely like top of my list. It's part of my weekly reviews, right? Like, am, am I maintaining these boundaries? Am I prioritizing properly? What can I, what can I let go of and still keep making progress? This is essentially half of how you break out of the validation spiral. It requires getting really honest about the time you have and what you want to do during that time. It's not about trying to fit more in or be more productive. It's not a how to get more done in less time kind of thing. It's being ruthlessly committed to what you want to do and how much time it's going to take in the real world. Now, the other half of breaking free from the validation spiral is deconstructing your relationship with achievement, success, and goals. And Rita's done a lot of work on that, too. There's still growth that I want to work towards. There's still goals that are being set, but there's just a very different motivation behind them. They mean something different to me and about me. And all of that's the stuff that's kind of happened behind the scenes that from an outside observer kind of can look very much the same, which is fascinating about us humans. In that before period, it was really about making goals based on the social conditioning, like mm -hmm. make more money. That's what everyone's supposed to do. That's how we're all measured by how successful we are. So that's what I should be doing. And then the last five years has been an exploration of the fact that goal achievement, I feel is my worthiness was based on goal achievement. My whole life has been like that. And then this latter part is that goal achievement is quite neutral to me now, right? Mm -hmm. Like it has zero impact on my human worthiness on any like to me the way i view anyone's worthiness has very little to do if not nothing to do with what they achieve in the world just by existing then it became do i want to do this goal would this be fun like is this the right season of life to be doing this for me all of those really like the boundary questions essentially right like mm -hmm. does this make sense do i have the bandwidth for this do i even like it those questions weren't available to me when I was so geared toward, I must achieve to be worthy and validated. It was just under there in my subconscious, driving so much of my actions without being examined. 
While we certainly have the ability to act against the dominant forces that encourage us to strive to prove our worth, we can't do that without first examining them, taking a closer look at, as Rita put it, the subconscious story that drives us. Now, one of the most influential people for me as I examine my own subconscious beliefs about what makes me worthy in this market economy is the culture writer and journalist, Anne Helen Peterson. Peterson's book, Can't Even, describes the systems that have led to our collective condition of burnout. In a Q&A with Library Drawn and Quarterly in Montreal, Peterson describes how powerful the dominant narrative has become, that today we just think of it as common sense. We're not without agency. But I also think that one of the things that sometimes gets discounted is just how the systems that we've been operating in are so powerful and were presented as very common sense. And depending on your personality uh, and your posture towards dominant ideologies, I was a pleaser. I wanted to follow the path. I thought that that was the way to do it. And I thought that if I did everything, like if I if I knew every obstacle on the path and, and knew the strategies for overcoming it, then I would reach stability, happiness, whatever those things are that, that we dream of as aspiring adults. In Can't Even, Peterson writes, quote, no amount of hustle or sleeplessness can permanently bend a broken system to your benefit. That's been a message that I've needed to hear over and over again. And it's this type of message that's allowed Rita to deconstruct her own relationship with the idea of success and proving her worth. Since examining her relationship with success, Rita's been able to shed the anxiety and stress that comes from constantly worrying about your worthiness or the risk of failure. But that doesn't mean she's any less successful than she was before. In fact, Rita's business has completely blown up in the last five years. Everything's growing faster and bigger, and it's fun, though. I'm not stressed out about it. I have all my hair. It's all good. Like, I'm not scared to make the ask anymore. I'm not scared to renegotiate you know, compensation with a client. I'm not worried about, you know, saying no to a really fancy client, right? That would look like a great logo on my website because they're not a good fit. Mm -hmm. So I, the, the fear of failing has been removed quite a bit. So I kept myself small before, because of course, if you like set little goals and you achieve them, that's a great little pat on the back for the achiever and worthiness of me. Oof. Yes, I know that strategy well, too well. Now, psychoanalyst Paul Verhaeg has another way of describing the fear of failure. More and more people are suffering the consequences of it, and I'm hoping that more and more people will see the connection between what they are experiencing and the system as such. But there's still a lot of work necessary because a number of them are not aware of it, are still thinking that they are the failures. And that has to do with the fact that uh, implicit in this system is the introduction of shame. In the Freudian times, we were ashamed of our body and of our sexuality. Right. Nowadays, yeah. we are not successful, so we feel ashamed about that. The strange thing is that this form of shame and uh, this implicit feeling of failure is even present on the highest levels. Even someone who is utterly successful and who is considered to be successful is deeply afraid of being a failure. Fear of failure. 
There are so many levels I feel that on, and in so many ways, it still impacts my own actions and decisions. But here's a question for you, and a question for me too. What could you create if you eliminate or mitigate the fear of failure? I still have to, you know, journal about it, walk through my brain, you know, have that level of meta-awareness because it, it's always present, um, those other thoughts, but it's getting easier. It turns out that that's kind of the way you grow stuff is <laughs> just like <laughs> taking a lot of action and seeing what works and what doesn't and then doing the things that work more. And that has only become possible when I've like removed that level of fear and anxiety from all of those actions. Today, Rita's business is massively successful by any external, meritocratic, or capitalist measure. She's grown a team of nine, generating well over seven figures in revenue, and contributed to almost nine figures in revenue for her clients. She's no longer setting her sights on small goals for fear of failure. So how'd she do it? We just, I guess we and I, realized we were quite uniquely good at this for a variety of reasons, not just because we're good at measuring things, we're good at measuring things off of Facebook. So we had like a, a more holistic view of the marketing, but we also, you know, I've been online marketing for a really long time. So if there is something that has been done around funnels, email marketing, like all of the things, I've pretty much seen most of it now, like nothing really surprises me at this point. <laughs> and all of those skills together ended up creating kind of this like super ad experience where it isn't just ads, but it's like, if your business is already working, our agency can help with social advertising, help it work even better with all of these different, like helping with the funnels and the measurement and the ads all together. Finding the positioning product and market for a business is almost never something that happens immediately. But Rita kept her eyes open for that sweet spot where the work she finds fun and satisfying came into alignment with a highly profitable business model. If you haven't found your sweet spot yet, don't fret. It's out there and you'll find it if you're looking for it. But finding that sweet spot, it's not the result of striving. It's the result of growth, not revenue growth, not team growth, but inner growth. So let's swing back to the question that kicked off this whole conversation. What does growth without striving look like? We can still work really hard and want to achieve, but it's no longer about what does that mean about me? And am, am I worthy if I, you know, I'm a failure if I don't do it? Am I worthy if I do? It's just neutral. And I'm really just gauging on whether or not myself and the team think it would be fun. We grew a lot this year. We like made some seven digits worth of revenue and then some. And that sounds really fancy, but it's not nearly as impactful or meaningful anymore as I just think it's remarkable that humans could create that. But I don't feel like it means that I'm a better person because I did that. I'm just I'm a better person because of who I had to become to do that. So you know, that's that's what next year is about. Just more evolution, more fun, and, and making sure that we serve the clients the best we can. I'm a better person because of who I had to become to do that. When I'm working with people on vision creation, commitment setting, or planning, I often ask the question, who do you need to become? I'm not asking them, of course, to change who they are. 
but to grow into a person who has the skills, perspective, and positioning to create what they want to create. Whether they actually achieve a particular goal is immaterial because that growth has such intrinsic value. That's what growth without striving looks and feels like to me and to Rita. Find out more about Rita Berry and her social advertising agency for female-led businesses at ritaberry.co. Now, before I let you go, I wanted to give you a heads up about what's happening with the podcast this year, or at least in this quarter. I'm going to be experimenting with a few new formats like this one and potentially being a little less consistent in my release schedule. I'm in the middle of writing a book and that project takes creative priority in my day. I'm still planning to release new episodes weekly as well as a newsletter, but that plan is subject to change at any time. If you enjoyed this episode, leave What Works a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. And while you're at it, share it with a friend. I think this is a message that will resonate with all the other overachievers, type A personalities, Enneagram 3s, and neurotic Virgos out there. And are you subscribed to What Works Weekly? Each week, I share an article or essay with over 6,000 business owners who want to grow without striving and thrive in the 21st century economy with their humanity intact. Go to explorewhatworks.com to sign up. Plus, you can browse past articles and episodes. That's explorewhatworks.com. What Works is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kildoff. This episode was edited by me, Tara McMullen, and Marty Seafelt. Our executive producer is Sean McMullen. Till next time, keep doing What Works.